You're listening to the Energy Policy Podcast, a production of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Tom Plant. I'm your co-host, Jeff Lane. And this month, we're talking about transportation. Last week, we talked a little bit about why policymakers might be interested in promoting uh, alternative fuel and electric vehicles. And this week, we want to talk a little bit about some of those policies. What are they? What are the what are the ones that are most effective? And as we look forward, what are some of the things that we think might actually shift um, shift the paradigm uh, toward electric vehicle ownership or alternative fuel vehicle ownership? Right. So that so there's, I think, kind of three broad categories, Tom, as, as we've thought through them in terms of state policies that drive adoption of electric vehicles or usage of electric vehicles. There are you know, straight incentives, so right. rebate programs. Uh, these are these are typically uh, state tax uh, credit programs, but they also range in terms of uh, reduced vehicle registration fees or waiving of registration fees, um, HOV lanes, things like that. But the primary driver, right, is are, are rebates. Right. And uh, uh, there's an organization that tracks these things. Plug in America, pluginamerica.org. Um, by their definition, there are 27 states that have some form of uh, state incentive for uh, vehicle adoption. They might be a little generous on that in that not all of those 27 actually have a, a fin- direct financial incentive to reduce the cost of purchase. But there are nonetheless uh, incentives, some form of incentive in 27 states. Yeah, we should mention actually all 50 states have the federal incentives. So yeah, exactly. you've got, uh, and it's a pretty sizable one. It's a substantial incentive. You've got $7,500. Um, that is a federal tax um, tax credit. The, the distinguishing thing about this tax credit, though, is that it's transferable. So generally, it's claimed by your dealership. And so it comes off of your upfront cost of the car. And that's really important to people as they're, you know, looking to go into debt on buying a new car, if they can lower the, the cost of that car through this federal tax credit, that's, that's pretty substantial. Um, and most state tax credits aren't that way. Right. Um, and that's something that states can look at. Can you make your tax credit transferable? The other, the other thing about the tax credit at the state level is it might be refundable which means if you don't have, you know, say you have a $5,000 state tax credit, but you don't have a $5,000 state tax liability, do you get the, the balance as a refund from the state? That's one way to approach it. Another is being able to carry it forward uh, year to year so that you can actually eventually see that, that full $5,000 benefit. And then, as I was saying before, making it transferable so that the dealership can actually claim that state tax credit all at once and and you can lower that from your initial purchase price of the vehicle. So and, and whatever the tax incentive I, I just want to point out I think we're we're talking about marrying the two two or the more sort of stressful things in people's lives buying a vehicle and taxes. Yeah. Right. So it's this is not this is not the the type of topic that you know, many consumers really want to dig into very deeply. But if you can make it easy for them and, and have the dealer or a third party monetize the tax credit, then the sticker price that they're paying with cash or more often financing, right, they, they can sort of see that in the math. It's uh, also but, leases. And so this right. also goes into the calculation of your lease cost, right? If, you're, if your dealer is able to claim the, the rebates or the tax incentives, 
then the lease costs mm -hmm. go down. Um, and that's really important to people too. You know, how much, if I want to lease a vehicle for the next three years, what's it going to cost me a month? And if you can lower that, lower that cost. And in some cases, you know, depending on your gas price and where you live and what your gas prices are, that cost of the leased vehicle can come close to what your fuel savings is, you know, depending on how often you drive, how long, how far you drive and, and what the cost of gas is. So th there's actually the opportunity to try and, um, you know, really cut down overall, if you look at your cost of ownership for the vehicle plus the fuel uh, to really reduce those costs. So I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying that for a lease uh, option on an electric vehicle, if you're able to uh, amortize out the tax credit on, on, for the term of the lease, uh, whether it's a three-year lease or four-year lease. Or just say the dealer's lease. able to claim that tax credit and reduce okay. the price of the vehicle so that your lease cost is lower. So the lease cost then is low enough that it actually is offsetting the... Um, or close to. Close to Usually the, the gasoline with, savings from a traditional yeah, exactly. average fuel economy vehicle. Usually with a lease, there's going to be limitations on how far you can, how, how many miles you can drive a month. So right, that might right. actually constrain your savings. Okay. But yeah, that's exactly what I'm saving. I mean, maybe you save $200 a month and your lease payment is $250. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So that's incentives. So that's, that's state incentives. That is sort of getting people into vehicles. I think we can kind of think about it that way, um, and, and the various ways to encourage uh, consumers to, to, to buy these products. The second is the charging infrastructure, right? How, how, do you, how do you charge these things? Is it workplace charging? Is it charging at home? Is it incentives for third parties to build charging? How do you sort of create that whole economy around um, uh, making it easy, as easy to charge an electric vehicle as it is to find a gas station. Yeah, and, and this is really gets into a couple of different issues, one of which has to do with, you know, this chicken and egg problem. You yeah. know, do I want to get an electric vehicle if I don't know I can charge it? Right. You know, and <clears throat> to get to where I want to go. Um, and then the other one is, you know, where do you live? Is Do you have the capability to charge a vehicle where you live? Are you parking on the street, you know, and, and uh, how are you going to do that, you know, take advantage of that home charging uh, capability? Because that really is an attraction with an electric vehicle is that I'm going to be home all night anyway. So, you know, the fact that I'm charging my vehicle all night while I'm at home doesn't really matter to me in terms of the, my time because uh, it's going to be there anyway. But if you don't have a garage, if you don't have a, a place where you can charge that vehicle at home, suddenly where you can charge becomes a pretty major issue. I, I think you're, you're, you're spot on there. So I think what you're saying is um, the, the primary sort of early adopters of electric vehicles have tended to be people that own their home, um, you know, single family homes. They, they have a charging a place to charge in their garage or even maybe invested in some charging infrastructure. So charging at night when they get home from work, you know, which is well more than an eight hour period to charge the average, uh, required to charge the average vehicle, not a problem. And it's typically a second vehicle, right? right. But as we sort of get into uh, higher levels of vehicle adoption, we're starting to talk about people that rent, 
um, people that live in large apartment buildings, people that maybe park on the street where there is no charging. Uh, and so you start looking at, are there workplace charging options? Are there other sort of creative car share programs, right, that would allow for uh, vehicle charging, dedicated vehicle charging? It starts to sort of think about, you know, is the infrastructure there to accommodate a broader demographic of, right. of EV drivers? And this, this gets into the policy arena, right? So one of the things from the home perspective, you might have tax credits for uh, EV charging infrastructure that a homeowner might buy uh, or pay for. Um, in order to put to retrofit their home so that they can charge their EV at home with a with a level two charger. So I think we should mention that there's usually three levels of, of charging infrastructure. One is just basically your 110 plug. That's mm -hmm. the slowest. Um, then there's level two, and that's going to be a much faster uh, charge, generally a 240 volt circuit. And then you've got your level three, which is the fast chargers. And those are going to, you know, cut your charging time down to, you know, maybe two hours um, total. But usually you, if you just use a level, like for me, I use a level three, maybe for 15, 20 minutes in order to get myself to a level that I need to be in order to get home or whatever. So the higher the voltage, the, the faster the vehicles charge. Right, exactly. Some of this has to do with what type of charging uh, capability your vehicle has. But for the most part, uh -huh. vehicles now are coming with level three charging capability. Right. So <clears throat> that th this translates to sort of uh, public policy, right? So as policymakers are thinking about charging infrastructure that the public might put in place, you want to think about how long is somebody going to be in that place, right? So if it's going to be outside of a coffee house or a diner, you, you know, you want to have a fast charger because people are generally going to spend 30 minutes, 45 minutes there. If you're talking about a town that wants people to come plug in their car and spend a couple hours in town, then you're talking about a level two charger. Um, and if you're talking about what might be installed in your garage, you could either have level one or level two charging. Generally, people don't need level three charging at home. And the same is true for your public uh, parking for workplace charging. Level two is generally going to get you to the level you need to be in order to, in order to fully charge your car while you're at work. So what are some of the policies we can look at that advance these various different things? So for home charging, there's tax credits. You know, what you spend on putting in the charging infrastructure. So, so what is the tax credit for a homeowner that wants to put in charging? Well, that's the policy question, yeah. uh, you know, and it's different in different states. Mm -hmm. um, and there used to be, uh, I, I, I believe there used to be a federal tax credit, but it's not there anymore. Right, right. Um, and um, so states, you know, can put in a tax credit for that. Another is when you're looking at new home construction, mm -hmm. uh, states can require that the garage is wired for 220, you know, so that you at least wire so that you can actually get a high uh, capacity level two charging infrastructure into the garage at some later date. And you know, that isn't, uh, that isn't really a significant cost when you're building a, uh, a home, when you're retrofitting, sometimes it can be. Then we talk about, you know, people who are, you know, are parking on the street, they need a real, they need a work charging uh, solution, right? So, I think that's yeah that's that's a that's a huge topic it, the 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 infrastructure that's in place now I think we have to give some uh, some nod to the 
the LEED certification program for mm -hmm. commercial buildings, the Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design program that's offered by, uh, managed by the U.S. Green Building Council, there were points early on for the LEED program for uh, building owners that wanted to achieve LEED certification, points for EV charging. I think there are a number of uh, new buildings out there that may or may not have the LEED designation that have one or two or three or five charging uh, 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 bays for vehicles, but you know, is that enough, yeah. right? And and uh, and having personally experienced the sort of anxiety of, well, w will there be you know an EV uh, parking uh, spot when I get to the parking garage or to the place that I'm going, knowing that I'm competing for one or two uh, spots, and so. Uh, that I think that has been sort of a first wave of infrastructure out there. You talked about new construction for the residential sector. The sort of incremental cost is the lowest when you're building new. I think that the commercial building sector for both retrofits and new has in part been driven by the USGBC program and, and other building owners kind of following suit. We're also, but, see, we're also seeing state legislation now that's saying right. uh, for every hundred parking, parking spaces you need to have X number of electric charging uh, spots. There, there was a bill in Hawaii this past session, right, right to do just to, just that. So, so the, it's the infrastructure. It's a little bit of the kind of, if you build it, will they come? Kind of question, and it's and it is a chicken or the egg dynamic. Um, it, and you mentioned you mentioned the sort of range and charging anxiety, right? The, the question that I think prospective buyers and even new EV owners have of where am I going to be able to charge this thing? particularly for the very high percentage of the population that rents, and particularly in urban environments that rent in very large buildings that might not have dedicated parking, uh, and for folks that, you know, frankly, might want to co-own a vehicle or car share a vehicle. So uh, what, what can cities do to uh, um, promote sort of the third-party charging environment, the charge point uh, type uh, business model? Are there things that, that, uh, that policymakers can do? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there was legislation uh, in Colorado a couple of years that tried to address that, you know, what you were talking about, uh, bringing in private sector investment and building out charging infrastructure. You know, we've talked in past podcasts about the third party solar legislation that's needed right. in some states where you say that they won't be treated like a utility if they're selling electricity. Uh, to a third party, right? So if you're so in essence, this is the same thing, right? This is a, right. a third party selling electricity to a consumer that just happens to be putting it in their vehicle instead right. of their home. Exactly. So if you're a charge point or one of the other uh, companies out there that's building uh, charging infrastructure, you want to have the capability of charging people 25 cents a kilowatt hour for the for the electricity that they're putting in their car. A lot of states, that's going to that, that's illegal, uh, according to the monopoly uh, rules that are in place. So what Colorado did was they exempted charging infrastructure from those um, those third-party requirements or those third-party limitations. So, so those third parties cannot be regulated as a utility company, exactly. essentially, right? Right. So that's so we talked about incentives for purchase. We talked about rebate programs and other incentives for consumers. We've talked about infrastructure. The, the charging infrastructure for vehicles for for homeowners and for uh, renters and folks that are looking to charge at work, etc. One of the things that's that's also real popular around the country is allowing uh, EV owners to use HOV lanes, so high occupancy vehicle right. lanes or HOT lanes, high occupancy toll lanes, 
um, to be able to use those for free if you're driving an electric vehicle. That can be a real attraction to people if they're worried about how long it takes them to get long commutes. Yeah, right. Get to right. work. Um, and then the third is 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 very simple, but maybe the most important, and that's a plan. Right. Having a state plan. Having a state plan, and and I think just to kind of. Uh, give a, a reference back to a project that the center has done, the Powering Forward project that we did with federal recommendations. We wrote a whole chapter on uh, alternative fuel vehicles and transportation, and the number one recommendation was a national energy plan for alternative fuel vehicles, and, and we don't have one. Absolutely, and I, I think it's actually really important for states as well, particularly right. states that want to try and attract investment from this whole industry that's evolving around uh, car charging and uh, electric vehicle infrastructure, um, if you're sending a signal to that market that you have a long-term plan, you have a long-term commitment to getting you know, a certain number of uh, electric vehicles on the road, that gives them a little bit of market certainty to make investments and maybe take risks in your state. So, I so think this is really similar, important. what you're saying, I think is similar to the the providing market certainty uh, that we talk a lot about in the renewable uh, sector and the clean energy sector about where investors really need to see some certainty that there is a long-term plan in a city or in a state to say we want to attract this investment for the infrastructure, for the vehicles, and you know invest your capital here. That's right. The, and I think there's quite a lot that cities can do with their plans, right? Particularly cities with the major major airports, where there are a lot of vehicles that are sitting for long periods of time. Right. What can they do with their uh, potential infrastructure at airports? Uh, what can they do to uh, incentivize uh, parking lot owners to install uh, EV charging? You talked about HOV lanes. Uh, and there are sort of myriad ideas that begin to really add up that kind of create this... Um, sort of loft the position of, uh, of, of EVs as an attractive uh, option. Right. Yeah, New Haven, Connecticut just recently put in place a policy that uh, basically gave a parking permit to, uh, to all EV owners so that they could park anywhere in the city without having to pay for their parking. Uh, in, a, in all the public parking spaces. So, you know, these various different incentives that give uh, EV owners alternative value in, in different ways, and also then addressing some of the very real challenges, particularly in urban areas, that people face in terms of charging uh, infrastructure. All those things are things that can be addressed through state policy. So it, I think it's safe to say transportation planning is definitely long-term planning, yep. and having a plan uh, a state plan or a regional plan uh, is really important. So those are the kind of the three major things that we think uh, in terms of state policy drive alternative fuel vehicle adoption. And Tom, I think we're going to talk uh, at the next segment about the role of utilities. Yeah, it's a really interesting conversation because most of our, uh, most of our policies are aimed at trying to make uh, increase energy efficiency, for example, in our buildings, which lowers the sales uh, to utilities, or increase distributed generation opportunities for homeowners or business owners, which lowers sales to utilities. And you look at electric vehicles, that's something that increases sales to utilities. And so it's a really different dynamic, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in the next segment. You've been listening to the Energy Policy Podcast, a production of the Center for the New Energy Economy at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Tom Plant. I'm your co-host, Jeff Ling. Listen next time.